I'm Andy Kesson, and this is A Bit Lit. Founded at the beginning of the UK lockdown, A Bit Lit is about conversation, celebrating and exploring theatre, literature and creative work across all periods and of all kinds. We've talked to professional wrestlers and about Ghostbusters and medieval sex positivity. We've looked at the histories of race, gender and sexuality. We followed migrating coconuts and the history of wine and cheese. We've gone from Jane Austen and Shakespeare to EastEnders via the history of early television, young adult fiction, photography, animation and documentary making. And with over 100 films already, many other subjects as well. Join the conversations at our website, abitlit.co or on YouTube and follow us on Twitter at abitlit. So Eleanor, thank you very much for joining us. How are you doing? Uh, you know, um, I am on lockdown, so pretty good, pretty great, I would have to say. And Love and life, uh, seeing the world. <laughs> and it looks like you're on lockdown in the middle of uh, a 17th century city of some kind behind you. Yeah, this is um, 17th century Paris, and uh, this is one of my great loves of my life, is my giant wall map, and it <laughs> is based on the first um, door-to-door survey in Paris. It's extraordinarily meticulously crafted. You can actually count every single tree in the Tuileries and stuff like this, so uh, it's a very, very uh, precious object to me, and getting a lot of use now that all I have to do is stare at walls. Right. So uh, it's going well over here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. nice. <laughs> Enjoy looking at that. Yeah. Uh, so in a moment, I'm going to ask you, as we're intending to ask most of our contributors, um, just to give us a sense of, of the work that you do, give us an overview of it. But I'm aware that um, you know, a key part of your work is the 14th century, and you're obviously yeah. the expert on this and not me. But before I ask you to, to clarify for us, I'll just make sure that our, our listeners understand that the 14th century occurred between the 13th and the 15th centuries. Oh, yes, yes. And indeed, between all other centuries, when you think about it. Um, is there anything more that we should know uh, about that century? So the 14th century, uh, and why it is the great love of my life, um, and also the best century, as far as I'm concerned, um, <laughs> is that from a European standpoint, and, you know, I am a Europeanist, so that is that tends to be how I frame things. Uh, It's a time of enormous upheaval. And one of the primary reasons that that is so, and one of the reasons why a lot of us are thinking about the 14th century at the moment is because that's when the Black Death arrives. Um, Not just in Europe, obviously, um, in Asia, in Africa, or all around the world. Um, And I don't know if you're aware, but it turns out that was a bad time. So um, after all of a sudden done, just within the 14th century context, about uh, 25% of the population dies. Um, It causes major social unrest and upheaval. It is an opportunity for people to really start thinking about medical things more deeply. It inspires a lot of really interesting literature um, and also a lot of rejigs in the way that people think about religion. So you name it, it kind of affects it. Um, And so we can sort of use it, I think, now to kind of place ourselves in our own pandemic. And to a certain extent, in this pandemic, even though, you know, this is awful, I'm not trying to downplay that, there is something kind of soothing being like, oh, well, something worse happened before and we came out of it okay. So there is a bit of a note of reassurance there. Um, Within that as well, in the 14th century, you know, most people do uh, get plague from some point or another. And uh, you know, just for those who are not uh, real plague heads, real Gs, um, I guess we could say that um, we know now that basically what happened in terms of the plague is that there was increased trade route on the Silk Road, uh, the land route. 
uh, the Silk Road, just so you're aware, it can be a number of things. So there's also the Silk Road that is over the Indian Ocean, but the Silk Road that sort of goes through China, you know, the stands, Turkmenistan, Kazakhstan, all of that. And um, there is increased trading on that route, and there were um, colonies of marmots on that route. And those colonies of marmots sometimes got the plague, and they also had fleas. Those fleas then got off of the marmots and onto the animals that were traveling through the convoys now, be that the horses or the oxen or the camels or any rats that would be traveling with them. So then those fleas travel with Europeans, well, sorry, not with the Europeans, sorry, travel with Asians, and then they get onto ships that hit the Europeans kind of over by the Black Sea and getting into Genoa. And then that's when all hell breaks loose and it gets all through Europe as well. But on the way, it's also going all through Asia and the Near East and that sort of thing. Um, and so a lot of people like to blame rats for this, uh, but hashtag rats did nothing wrong. And it's actually the fleas that were on rats and marmots and also people. So I try to like refocus on the fact that fleas were doing that. Um, and with a, if you actually catch bubonic plague, the uh, bacteria being Yersinia pestis, which is something I know because uh, I did my life wrong, you basically untreated, you're, it's likely that you're going to die. It's something like, um, I think, an 80% chance that you will die. Perhaps you won't get it at all. A lot of people aren't. Um, there are kind of scientific concepts that one of the reasons why a lot of people suffer from allergies now is that our immune systems are kind of like hypervigilant and this is the sort of person who survived the plague is the one that had like really crazy immune systems that go off um, for no reason. But uh, in that case, you know, now we've got uh, bubonic plague sorted, we've got vaccines for it, we can absolutely handle it. And so it's kind of encouraging to know that even with something way, way more virulent, something that's absolutely going to kill people and really change the way things are, We've got a much smaller pandemic now. We're talking about a 1% to 2% mortality rate, which is still awful, obviously. Um, but we also understand germ theory now, which is great. And we can kind of have scientists look at things. So it's not just um, that this is going to go on into perpetuity because uh, the plague also recurs just over and over again. Um, one of the things that's going around the internet a lot right now in terms of the plague is you'll see a lot of plague doctor masks, you know, that look like the beak, like the bird thing. And everyone will say, oh, it's a medieval plague doctor. And then um, I'm really cool. So I spend all my time saying, oh, actually, that's not a medieval plague doctor mask. Uh, that's a 17th century uh, plague doctor mask. And um, we think that the only place they were ever really used was in Italy. But it, what they show us is that the bubonic plague keeps recurring over and over again. So a lot of the time when people think of plague, they're actually thinking of the 17th century plague um, here in London, in Venice, in things like that. Um, and that's actually where we get the word quarantine from, uh, is that in order to come into Venice, um, you were supposed to wait on ships when plagues were breaking out for 40 days or a quarante giorno, and then that's like quarantine. Oh, wow. I've learned so much. Thank you. Um, <laughs> That's dense. Sorry. <laughs> no, that oh, like, you know, give me a chance to talk about Plague, baby. I will go. I will go. In, um, in the first video for this series, and in a way, one reason we're doing this series is responding to our own current moment. I had a go at suggesting that although everything feels super weird at the moment, in many ways, this is for humankind. Maybe, maybe the situation is normal and mm. that we've forgotten that. And, um, in the hope that maybe we have kind of coping mechanisms in our DNA and in our, our historical cultural practices. And you are the perfect person to talk to you uh, <laughs> about that. Um, may we um, turn to the question of your work more generally then? Um, and I know it's quite early in the morning and I know we've just met, but it would be nice to talk about sex at some point to have a- You know, a that's what I do, baby. So, uh... 
So yeah, it's always time to talk about sex. I'm the one usually making it weird, so it's nice that someone else asked to bring it up first. Because I'm the one doing that over coffee, so. Yeah, would you give our viewers um, a sense of um, the work that you do? Yeah, so um, one of my areas of special uh, speciality, other than, you know, plague, I kind of, what I always joke about is that I do sex and death because mm -hmm. nothing else matters. So um, I work on the plague, I work on sexuality, and I work on apocalypticism um, because I think that these are like the underlying conditions of the human psyche. Um, and what I love about medieval sex and what is just so, um, always kind of brings me back to it is that there's this tendency when we think about the medieval period to go, oh, well, this is an extraordinary extraordinarily religious period. Uh, these people are just thinking about God, they're focused on that, and so clearly it's like a sex-negative society, it's something that they would just obviously think that sex is bad. And um, it's not like that at all. Medieval people are extremely horny and like writing about it all the time, which is a wonderful from a literature perspective. Um, but it is one of these strange things because the way obviously that we learn about it as historians is so extraordinarily mediated because it's about what survives. Mm. And I mean, you know, the internet blogs notwithstanding, a lot of us are not necessarily writing, you know, long drawn out things about the sort of sex that we like to have and like what's going on. I mean, some of my friends are and they're making, you know, a living off of it and God bless them. Uh, shout out to girl on the net. But, uh, you know, for the rest of us, sex is more something that we do and less something that we write about it. Even I, as someone who writes about it constantly, I'm not necessarily writing about my personal life. Uh, and that means that what we have a lot of the time in terms of source survival is super religious because it comes from the church, right? And so what we end up kind of getting through to us is stuff that is like, sex is very bad and you shouldn't have it because you're all so bad, right? Um, because uh, the medieval Christian standpoint, and really, you know, technically the Christian standpoint now, is that sex is bad, right? So sex is um, a naughty thing, and the reason it's bad is because it sort of exists because of the fall of man, right? So when Adam and Eve were uh, spending all their time naked in the Garden of Eden, and they were immortal, there was no need for them to have more children. They could just kind of sit and exist and be. When they fall and they become mortal, they have to make more children in order to replace themselves and that means that they have to have sex. So sex in and of itself is like proof of mankind's frailty. So the ideal medieval person, according to the church, doesn't have sex, they're celibate. Because the ideal medieval person is, well, a dude, um, and they are a member of the clergy. So they're just going to devote their lives to celibacy, they're going to focus on God, and they're going to get through it. Now, they acknowledge that this is not really something that most people can do, though. And this is where we get the phrase, it's better to marry than to burn. Mm. Um, there, it, that's something that gets thrown around a lot, and it's something that a lot of people have heard of. Um, but there are some questions that we have from a literature standpoint about this, where it's not entirely clear. The main way that it's, um, uh, it's interpreted, and the way that I tend to interpret it, is it's better to get married and then have sex with the person that you're married to, because you've had a religious ceremony, that means that it's all right, um, than to go to hell and burn forever in eternal flame, yes? Um, but then there's also a way of reading it where people think that perhaps the burn means to sort of burn with lust, that can be distracting and overpowering. 
Um, and there's a really big focus on that within medieval sexual thought. This idea that lust is this thing that is really overpowering. Um, it kind of occludes the mind. Mm -hmm. uh, it distracts you from whatever it is uh, that you're trying to accomplish, which um, I think for a lot of people working at home at this moment, that's, uh, that's becoming a reality. and something that people kind of see. Um, but this, <laughs> there is this kind of dual understanding of sexuality there and what it might mean. So either way, the way that we think about it, um, uh, in terms of it's better to marry than to burn, the idea is there is one acceptable way to have sex and that is to get married and to not only be married when you're having sex, but ideally be trying to procreate when you have sex. Yeah. So it's not kind of like a free for all once you married. It's that it's that you should be ideally trying to have children. So ideally, then um, you wouldn't be having sex when a woman is menstruating. Uh, you wouldn't be having sex when a woman is breastfeeding. Um, you wouldn't be having sex um, in times when people are like really quite ill. When it seems like conception isn't going to happen. So you should always be attempting to increase your chances of pregnancy. And that kind of means some interesting throw up throwback things as well that we don't necessarily think of. Because like our conception of sexuality, uh, it's definitely based off of this medieval one, right? Where we will say, you know, we have this concept where we go like real sex, right? So um, what Americans will use is the kind of like a bases analogy for sex where it's like, oh, you know, first base is groping and second and like third base is oral sex and fourth base is uh, penis and vagina sex. Um, and so there is this kind of conception here now where it's like, oh, penis and vagina sex, you know, the kind that can get people pregnant. Um, that's real sex. Uh, the medieval people really thought, okay, well, that's real sex, but not like real sex in the way that we're like, that's the only one that counts. For them, they're like, that's the only one that's acceptable, mm -hmm. right? So everything else on there, you're not really supposed to be doing because technically, um, anything else that you do, any kind of sex that you're having other than penis and vagina sex, where you're married and where someone is probably going to get pregnant is sodomy. Um, and when you and I tend to use the word sodomy, I mean, I'm sure as we all do, <laughs> a lot of people assume now that when you say sodomy, you're talking about anal sex specifically. Um, but that's not the case. That's not what sodomy means. It's, it's literally just, I mean, if you're having oral sex, you're doing sodomy. Um, you know, manual sex, that sort of a thing, sodomy. Like, it's all sodomy if no one can get pregnant, right? And the reason we associate anal sex with sodomy is because, well, definitely no one's getting pregnant, right? Like that's definitely on the cards, it's not gonna happen. Um, there's also this kind of underlying thing that like any kind of uh, homosexual sex, like the, what we would call homosexual sex, so between two women or two men, it's all definitively gonna be sodomy, right? Because no one can get pregnant. Um, I mean, I'm talking about cis people here, obviously. Uh, it's completely possible if for uh, there to be homosexual relationships with trans people involved and someone could get pregnant, so we all got to be careful. But um, for cis gay people, it's always going to be sodomy. And then there's a tendency of us, because we think, oh, real sex is penetrative. That's the one that our brain goes to specifically. It's like, oh, anal sex. Yeah, okay, so that's penetrative, so that's real sex. So that's what you're talking about with sodomy. Medieval people know. Uh, and so as a result, medieval people are like super into sodomy and like that's the sexy stuff, right? <laughs> because you're not supposed to be doing it. Right. Like you can go and have like, you know, penis and vagina sex with your wife and husband all you want and that's great. But they're like, yeah, but I really want to do oral sex. Yeah, but I really want to, you know, do X, Y, or Z. And we know that they're kind of obsessed with this because it comes up a lot in penitential literature. Hmm. Uh, do you know what penitential literature is? 
Well, tell, tell, tell all Okay, so Penitential Literature is, um, it's sort of like a how-to book. It's a guidebook for priests um, when they go into confession. Uh, and it kind of tells them how to construct um, what they should be giving as penance for people who have confessed sins. And it also kind of gives them guides about like what to ask to kind of draw people's sins out. Um, because in a super Catholic world where people are confessing more often, they might sort of go in and be like, oh, I don't know. Sure, I'm a sinner, but what have I done? And then the priest can kind of ask leading questions to say, oh, have you done this? Ah, that's a sin, and here's what you need to do. And we do see a lot in penitential literature come up questions specifically about sodomy. So questions about, um, were you performing oral sex? Um, are you trying to get someone to perform oral sex? Are you trying to do strange magic to your husband to make him more interested in having oral sex with you? Um, we also see things where specifically priests will be asking uh, people if they're making dildos. That's like a big one. It's like, um, have you made uh, have you made something of leather or clay to match your shameful desires in the shape of a man's measure? That's like one question. So that's like, are you making dildos slash using dildos? And then there's another uh, question after that. It's like, and have you fashioned leather straps or a type of harness so that you can put it on yourself and used it on a woman? And so then they're asking, oh, um, are you making a strap on and using it on other women? So it's <laughs> like, there are, so there's this, you know, we might think now, oh yes, sex toys and all this stuff. This is a very part of, big part of the modern condition. Um, it's something that we're talking about a lot right now while everyone is on lockdown. We know that um, sex toy ordering has gone way, way up, just shot through the roof while everyone is locked in their house. Uh, but medieval people were doing that too. Um, but penitential literature is really difficult because on the one hand, sure, it's probably reflective of a series of practices. But on the other hand, it's written by these celibate guys, right? So the same guys who are like, oh, don't have any kind of sex unless you can get pregnant and don't do all these things, you know, it's a bunch of dudes who don't have sex sitting around being like, ooh, what are those people, what, what are the people who have sex, what are they getting up to? Yeah, I bet they're making dildos. They're making dildos. That's very, anyway. And so in a way, it also kind of like reads in this as this sort of like hyper-sexualized fantasy that people who aren't having sex are engaging in. So you have to be really careful with it and sort of read between the lines because yeah, it's probably likely. People are certainly making dildos and strap-ons. We have receipts that exist that say that someone made like a red leather strap-on dildo in the low countries, for example. So we know that they're out there. Uh, but dildos don't really survive to us because no one is like, bury me with my dildo or like, you know, dildos don't get like passed down through the family. You don't go, oh, here is my beloved dildo, you know, to my niece, please. Like, so, you know, they, they go missing. They, we get rid of them. But we know it's happening. But we also know that the priests asking about it are probably just like using a scattergun approach because they just kind of want to talk to a lady about whether or not she's using dildos. So there's also this kind of like mediated sexuality mm -hmm. happening there. Yeah. Um, so, you know, uh, I think this is fascinating <laughs> uh, because I think it's really fun to kind of dig into um, the way that people try to prescribe sexuality or control sexuality, yeah. uh, which is something that we're still doing today. Yeah, you know? yeah absolutely. Um, I mean, talking about kind of horniness and overpowering lust, as a kind of um, concern in the period you're talking about, people sort of are starting to document that in places like Twitter now, you can kind of see not just horniness, but the anxiety about building levels of horniness and no obvious outlet or solution to that. 
Um, it's becoming a kind of literary genre on Twitter. Um, it's true, it's true. And I, I love the idea that it's better to marry or to burn, because I don't know, I might, I might be misreading that phrase, but to me, the logical outcome of that is that we should all marry firemen, which I would be fine with. <laughs> <laughs> that would I mean, be yeah, absolutely. You know, there's a reason those calendars exist. You know, come on, it's a, a form of propaganda, clearly. Um, um, oh, go on. Sorry. No, go ahead. Well, if it's all right to move on to um, the final thing, I want to make sure I, I talk to you about coming out of your work. Mm. And again, feel free to correct me on this, but I think of the 14th century also as a period of revolt and rebellion, and perhaps you know, we don't want to. I don't think we want to uh, incite a rebellion now, or, or at least if we do, we'd like to make clear that we didn't intend to, uh, <laughs> for legal purposes. But um, is, is, is this a, a period in which um, uh, widespread illness is connected to uh, attempts to rethink the world uh, and, and in particular social hierarchy and, and power structure? Mm, certainly. So one of the things that kind of the plague lays bare is that a lot of the extant hierarchical structures aren't doing anything, you know, for not just the majority of people, but just writ large. So here's a pandemic that's killing 25% of the people um, in the world, as far as these people are aware. And the church, who is meant to be this direct link to God, can't offer any answers to what's happening. Um, there are the kings and who are ruling things, who are supposed to be there because of divine right, who are supposed to be you know, emissaries of God to a certain extent. They are unable to do anything. Um, the people who have been studying medicine are unable to do anything. It's just... It, shows how extraordinarily fragile society is and how all these people who claim to have some sort of uh, divine link or some way to order the world in a way that makes sense are just full of it, you know, and they've made it up. So you see a kind of upsurge in sort of forms of personal piety is a big thing that comes up. There's uh, the flagellant movement, uh, which is a really strange one, kind of springs up overnight. It's especially popular kind of in Germanic countries, but it also exists in Italy as well, where groups of people sort of get together and they go town to town and beat themselves, kind of strip to the waist and beat themselves, um, and then fast for numbers of days uh, based on kind of calculations of the numbers of uh, Jesus being in the desert for 40 days and that sort of a thing. Um, and so what they're kind of saying is that if God has sent the plague to earth to punish people, well, they're punishing themselves. They're getting out in front of it. They're showing that they're sorry. They're showing that they're repetitive for whatever it is um, that they, the world has done to discredit God because clearly the church can't step in and do anything right? Um, same thing with the way that rulers work. Um, so you have, especially towards the end of the 14th century, um, a number of popular rebellions. Um, so there's the Jacquerie rebellion in uh, France, and here in London, we have the Peasants' Revolt. Um, and they are kind of expressions of the fact that all of the serfs are really sick of it, you know? So um, one of the big ways that the, I mean, it's very, very difficult to kind of sum up what feudal society actually was. In a lot of ways, we're moving away from using the term feudalism because the way that it's understood is not real. Yeah. But it is easy to say uh, that the great majority of people who were alive in Europe in the medieval period were not free. Uh, they were serfs. Um, and it's not like chattel slavery. It's not the same thing. It's not like you are owned wholly bodily and, you know, your family unit is, isn't treated with respect and you're not seen as human. It's just that you're not free to move down the road. 
you aren't free to negotiate for what your wages are. Essentially, you live on a farm. The farm is owned by your lord or landlord. Um, you are allowed to stay there by their grace, and a percentage of your crops have to go to feed them, and probably at some point in time, you're going to have to go and do work on their land, um, which is... Sorry, so you're allowed to stay there by their grace, but you're also not allowed to leave, just to make sure. Yes, exactly. So, you know, it's one of those things where you're, you're not free to make your own decision about where you go and what you do. You're not free to negotiate prices for things, you know. Um, and then here's the thing. When a quarter of the population dies, suddenly this starts making no sense, right? Because why can't you ask for more money for your labor? If there's suddenly, you know, 25% less people are doing it, surely it should be worth more money. Suddenly it's like, well, who's going to make me stay on this farm? Like you and what army exactly, you know? And so people, poor people sort of get together and they start, they start saying, this is not actually how the world is definitively run. This isn't the way that things always have to be. This is something that we can theoretically change. Um, and we see popular preachers involved in this. There's a lot of going around kind of agitating for things. Um, and then what ends up happening here in the Peasants' Revolt is that everyone initially kind of marches out to Blackheath um, near Greenwich. Uh, there's a big sermon delivered uh, by uh, John Ball, the priest, uh, kind of riling them all up. And uh, the king comes out and he talks to uh, Watt Tyler, who is leading the rebellion. And they're saying, oh, could you actually call this off? We'll start treating you nicer. And they're like, yeah, I don't think you are going to, though. Um, and there ends up being a giant riot. And the peasants kind of come into London. They take the city. Uh, they burn down the Savoy Palace. They free everyone from all the jails. They arrest and kill a lot of noblemen. And for a while, they're actually in control of the city. Um, it kind of goes pear-shaped. Eventually, Watt Tyler is uh, killed um, and then when uh, the king gets back in control of everything the crackdown is really brutal they kill a lot of peasants um, terrible things are said about how they're going to put all the peasants back in their place and how they're nothing and they're dirt um, so it's kind of a depressing thing because sometimes I like to look at it and go oh look it means that um, people can uh, realize that they have collective worth outside of the money that they make for the elites. Um, and it shows the irrepressibility of the human spirit because even in these extraordinarily hierarchical conditions, uh, serfs can realize that they're worth something. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you know, they're put down very violently and it kind of all goes away. But one of the things that we can kind of learn from this is that there is some power here. And frankly, the powerful are frightened of anyone ever kind of getting together and asserting themselves. And this can be a kind of useful thing to think about uh, for us right now in the middle of a pandemic. Um, we can think about the way that we use our labor. Uh, we can think about how it is that our labor generates worth for other people and how it's valued. Um, and hopefully, you know, nothing violent is going to happen, but this is a real opportunity to take a look at our own society and realize that things that we think are immutable truths can actually change in favor of ordinary people. And so that's something kind of valuable to sit with right now, I think. That's so profoundly exciting and interesting that I'm not gonna ask you any more questions because that's a perfect place for us to wrap up on. But um, that's a, a really um, strangely inspiring way to think about the current situation. So thank you. Uh, we are finishing videos by asking one, one final question. Um, and the, um, the kind of uh, the concept behind these videos is the idea of exploring what we mean by the term of the term literature and thinking about that word, whether it's a good word, bad word, a useful word or not. Um, so yeah, does that word mean anything to you? Does it have any value to you at all? 
I, it's a really, it, it's a word that I have a really complicated relationship with uh, because I work on a lot of literature, you know, in this uh, very uh, conversation, we, I've talked about uh, penitential literature and what that means. Um, but oftentimes it can, I can find it can be dis, sort of divisive when you're doing history because some, uh, to a certain extent, everything's literature if we're reading it, right? So, um, you know, uh, someone's account books can sort of be literature. Um, penitential literature is a thing, but so is courtly love literature, which is uh, about actually writing stories and writing poems and this sort of thing. So it can kind of be a tense sort of a word because it's like, well, what do we mean by that? And how does it bring us together with things? But on the other hand, I guess from my uh, standpoint as a historian, it's always just exciting because the minute we're talking about literature, we're talking about something that was written down. And so therefore, it's something I can work with, right? <laughs> so what, what I'm always looking for is just something that I can work with, another piece, another clue. And it doesn't necessarily matter to me whether that is uh, penitential literature, which is, you know, in a lot of ways, a wishful list about like what sexual things might be happening or could be happening. Um, and courtly love literature, which is sort of about like the wishful romantic things that could be happening between individuals at court. So it doesn't necessarily matter to me if it is something that's being used in the real world or if it's something that is literature for the sake of literature. In the end, hundreds of years later, what it ends up telling us is the kind of about the imagination of a society and how people are thinking writ large. So as a whole, I think that the term literature opens up more than it closes down. So it's something for me that is always useful, but um, we always have to take it with a grain of salt. And I think that we always have to say, okay, yes, but what do we mean by that? Yeah, I love that answer. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> You're very welcome. I don't think I got you to introduce yourself by name. And I know talking of things that are written down we can use, that you've got a book forthcoming. So do you, would you, you. tell uh, both the name of your, your, yourself and your forthcoming book? Yeah, so my name is Eleanor Yanaga, um, and I've got, uh, beginning of next year coming up, I have a graphic guide to the medieval period uh, on Icon Press, uh, and it is called uh, The Middle Ages uh, Graphic History. Um, and coming up, I am also currently working on a book called The Once and Future Sex, which is about uh, sexuality, gender standards, and beauty standards um, in the medieval period and what that means to us now. Can't wait to read um, both of them. We, we introduced you at the end, not because I'm incompetent, but because we're a very experimental uh, YouTube series. I love it, yes. <laughs> um, thank you so very much. It's been great. Cheers. Such a pleasure, Andy. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.